This month we're uh, doing this new series now called Contending for the Truth About Grace. And last week I started it, and I think uh, talking about grace is one of the most important things we can talk about right now because we live in a culture that just vastly uh, misunderstands about grace, and there's a lot of false teaching about grace. And uh, the reason I think it's such an important topic is because what you believe about grace is going to really deeply impact your life and how you pursue after God and how you deal with sin and whether or not you're even able to fear God. And so it's a, it's a huge topic. And, and last week we dealt mostly with what grace isn't. And uh, today we're going to deal mostly with what grace is. And throughout this series and throughout this month, we're going to bounce back and forth between those two realities, what grace isn't and what grace is. Really important. And uh, I just want to uh, draw your attention to something else. As most of you are coming in the, in the doors today, uh, you'll have noticed that uh, we've got these big stacks of, of papers and if I could convince you to do one thing uh, today, that would be worth the whole message right there. If I could convince you all to take uh, one of each of these papers home and actually go through it for yourselves, you are going to learn a lot about what the Bible says about grace and about forgiveness and about salvation. All right? One of the papers is entitled, Once Saved, Always Saved, with a question mark. And uh, the other paper is called, Repentance is Necessary in Order to Receive Forgiveness. Now, unfortunately, I think a demon got into our printers last night. And uh, the, a lot of the papers that for repentance is necessary in order to receive forgiveness, for some reason it blocked out the title. So it looks like it's just a blocked out title. So we've got blocked out title and one saved, always saved. Take one of each, all right, uh, on your way out. And uh, these are papers, uh, these represent our church position on these subjects, okay? I happened to write them, but I wrote them with the staff, and we worked through this stuff, and, and this is not what I believe. This is what our church believes. And again, I, I would just, again, if I, if I could just get you to go through them, the reason is because they have so much scripture in them. Uh, one saved, always saved, and their repentance is necessary for forgiveness. Both of them have uh, dozens and dozens, I'm not exaggerating here, dozens and dozens of passages of scripture in them. In fact, big chunks of these papers are just... Passage of Scripture, and then I make a few comments. Passage of Scripture, I make a few comments. Uh, that's what they are. And uh, One Saved, Always Saved deals with uh, questions like, can a Christian lose his salvation? I mean, is there anything more important? I mean, these are eternal questions. And if so, how could you lose your salvation? And at the very end of it, it de- deals with how can you have assurance of salvation? And the repentance is necessary for forgiveness is really the foundation. I've been working on that one for a while. Is the foundation for this series that we're doing right now on grace. And as many of you can tell already from last week, a big part of what I'm preaching about grace in this series is the centrality of repentance for receiving God's grace. And so in that paper, again, dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures, you're just going to learn lots about the Bible. It's a big Bible study. And I would love it if you would take it home, read it during your devotions, have your Bible there, look up. Don't believe what you believe about something as important as, as your eternal salvation and about what grace is and whether you're covered or not by it. Don't believe what you believe just because I told you or someone else told you. Because, I mean, heaven or hell is a big question. You want to know what does the Bible actually say? And I would challenge you to look in those papers and, and uh, find out for yourself. That would be, I mean, to me, that would be worth this whole message if you would all do that. Um, because one of the things about preaching is, preaching is a poor medium for going super, super deep in Scripture. I just don't have time. And so in this series, 
uh, you know, and today, I'm going to say a bunch of things today, and I got a bunch of scriptures, yeah, but I'm going to say a bunch of things. I don't even have time to get into the scriptures, and I've got six or seven scriptures in my head that I'd like to go through. We don't have time to go there, and some of you might be wondering, well, how can he say that? How does he know that? Well, it's in the Bible, and these papers take this stuff that I'm talking about, and they just take it down deep, and lots and lots of passages of scripture to back up the things that are being said. And uh, so I would, again, I would challenge you to do that. I want to say one other thing here before we pray and, and get going is, uh, is this. And some of you might be new here. Some of you, if you've been here for a while, I've, I've said this stuff before. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention the, the internet too. If you don't grab one of these papers on the way out, uh, we will have both these papers online. Uh, you can just look at it. It's the front page of the website right underneath the upcoming events and news. It'll be there for at least a week. You can just click and have them. And with everything we make here at Southland, we don't charge for this stuff. It's just... You borrow it, you copy it, you do whatever you want with it, um, and uh, we love that. We just want to get the truth out there as much as we can. Um, but now, uh, what I wanted to say now is, uh, is also one other thing. For those of you, some of you might be new here, uh, we are a unique church, and one of the things that makes us unique, that is different about us here at Southland than most churches out there that you've ever been to and that exist, is uh, most churches have, have one main pastor who does most of their preaching. That's big churches, that's small churches. Most churches have one uh, primary pastor uh, for preaching. Here at Southland, we don't do things that way. We've got two, myself and Pastor Ray, basically do half and half. And then we have a few other very gifted staff, and they also take up a, a, a few every year. Um, and, uh, and the reason I bring that up right now is, is so we bounce back and forth. So Pastor Ray will go for a month, and he'll do a series. And then I'll go for a month, and I'll do a series. And, and maybe if you're new here, you might get this idea like, well, you know, Chris kind of preaches his series, kind of the ones he wants to do, kind of things he believes, and then Pastor Ray preaches kind of his series and things he believes, and you need to know that that is not how we operate here. Um, uh, first of all, uh, my relationship to Pastor Ray, two things you need to know. First of all, he's my dad, and number two, he's my boss, okay? I'm not allowed to preach whatever I want to preach, Okay? Thank you for not saying amen. Last night they said amen, okay? It's very painful for me. Okay, you need to know that. So when I get up here and go on grace, it's not, oh, Chris is doing his thing. I wonder what Pastor Ray thinks. I wonder what the church thinks. This is all stuff, I, many discussions. This is all stuff that's coming out of what we've believed for many, many, many years. Many discussions. Going at this thing, going back and forth, learning from each other, doing this, putting this down. What I'm really doing in this series is laying a foundation, a theological foundation for what we've been practicing for years, which is uh, the encounters and everything else, why we're so pumped about confession and repentance. And so that's, I just wanted you to know that. I didn't want you to think that I'm just making this up on my own and I'm doing my own thing. I'm certainly not, all right? So on that note, bow your heads with me and close your eyes and then, and then we're going to pray and then we're going to speak about grace. Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, um, uh, if we could have the fear of the Lord and the love, God, if we could have both those things coursing through our hearts, oh, what a life that would be, and what a church this would be. And uh, Jesus, I want to first pray that for myself, and I want to pray that for everybody here. Pray that you, would, that you would just really speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to talk, uh, I want to start here this morning uh, talking about God, the fact that God really loves you. I want to talk about three ways that God loves you, and it's really important how God loves you because it, it, it uh, helps explain what grace is and why grace is the way it is. Okay, so God really loves you. He really genuinely loves 
uh, each one of us here. And the first uh, way that we know this, and there's many ways. I mean, you could go messages and messages. I'm just, just scratching the surface here just briefly to give an intro into grace. Because there's something about grace you need to know that just stems from God's love. But the first thing you need to know about the fact that God really loves you is that uh, he pursues you. He pursues you and me, each one of us as individuals. Uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus gives three parables. And all of them have to do with how God loves each of us as individuals. And each of the parables is set up in such a way that it's not, this is how God loves us as a group. It's how God loves you as an individual person. He does love us as a group, but sometimes I think we get this idea that God is kind of, he just loves people. Does he really love me? And the thing you need to know from these parables is he really loves you. And the first parable is the, is the famous parable, right, of the shepherd and the sheep and the lost sheep. And so the shepherd, who represents God, obviously, and the sheep who are human beings, and, and, and he's got a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep gets out. And now the shepherd can, can operate in a few, in different ways here, right? The shepherd could be indifferent. He could think to himself, well, I've, I've got, still got 99, and that stubborn, dumb sheep insists on getting out of the fence, and I'm just going to let him have what comes to him. The shepherd could respond that way, right? He does not respond that way in this parable. And Jesus gives us insight into God's heart for people. What does the shepherd do? He shuts the other 99 up. He is not indifferent to the stubborn, dumb one that leaves the path. And he goes out and he searches for him. He looks for him. This is God looking for you, seeking after you. He cares about you being saved in the end. He cares about you having a relationship with him for all of eternity. He's not indifferent towards you. And so the shepherd searches after this little lost sheep, and when he finds him, he picks him up and he brings him back to the fold. And then Jesus tells a second parable, and it's exactly the same point. Right after he shares the parable of the, of the lost sheep, he shares the parable of the, of the widow, the woman, who's got 10 valuable coins. And these coins are her life savings. This is how she's going to live. And this is her sustenance. And she loses one of her valuable coins. And this is a devastating loss. And so Jesus asked the question, well, what does she do? Well, she lights a lamp. And she turns her house upside down looking for it. She sweeps every last corner. She looks in every last nook and cranny until she finds that coin. And then she's so overjoyed at having found it that she calls all of her neighbors over and they have a big party, right? And again, we get insight into God's heart for each of us as individuals. He longs, he longs to have you in his arms. And he is working extremely hard. Everything other than overrule your free will But he is setting things up, circumstances in your life, even trials, blessings sometimes, whatever it is. But he is trying to maneuver you into a position where you can be found by him and where you will let him pick you up and bring bring you back in. And these parables are not just for non-Christians. We tend to, many times we Christians, we just leave out big chunks of the scripture because they think, well, that's just for a non-Christian. No, no, this is for all of us. This is God's heart for every single human being. And he searches after you and he seeks you. He, he loves you. You have great value to God. Okay, that's really important. Which leads me to my second point, which is this, another way in which God loves us and which we, in which we see how valuable we are to him is this. He takes no pleasure in punishing wicked people. He takes no pleasure in punishing wicked people. This is really important to understand too because we've been talking about the fear of the Lord and judgment, which is essential. These are essential things to know. 
Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what we don't want to do is get to the point where we think that God is just happy. He's like tricking people into getting judged or helping people get judged or wanting people to get judged. That's not how he is. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says this, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Not some, not a few, all people. Every human being, you're here today, God's desire for you is for you to be an overcomer. God's desire for you is that you would someday stand before him and he could say, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't want you just barely saved. He wants you radically saved to good works and to reward for eternity. He wants all people to be saved. That's his heart. Ezekiel 33, 11. I'm going to read you two passages from Ezekiel here. I, I just find these are beautiful uh, windows into God's heart. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. So this is God speaking to Ezekiel, giving him a word to give to the Jewish people on his behalf. He says, say to them, and they were very backslidden at this point. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'm not desiring, I'm not looking forward to judging you. I mean, you're living in such a way that I'm going to have to, but I take no pleasure in it, but that the wicked turn from his way. That's repentance. So I'm talking about in this series. You've got to confess and repent, but, to, but turn from his way and live. That's what God is pleasuring. Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? No. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That's God's heart towards you and me. Okay? It's God's heart towards you and me. But this is where many North American Christians go wrong. A lot of North American Christians today have gotten to the point where they think that because God doesn't like to punish people, that he won't. That is a dangerous mistake to make. They think that because God wants to reward each one of us, that he automatically will. He most certainly won't. The fact of the matter is that, yes, God loves us, deep value, each one of us, incredible value in God's sight. He loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you. He does not want to punish you. But the fact is that he is also awesome and breathtaking in his holiness. I mean, if you go through Scripture, and I've been fascinated by this, but go through Scripture sometime and and pull out all the passages where people saw God or came into his presence, Um, and you will find people on their faces as though dead pretty much every time. Because the holiness just takes your breath away. The purity, it's this burning purity. It's not like a niceness at all. It's not nice doesn't capture it. Niceness isn't anything like this. It's It's a white, hot holiness and righteousness. Just this cleanliness, this purity, this integrity, this truth, this all of this. This is his being. And so, yes, he loves you. He does not want to have to punish you. But he hates sin. He really, really hates it. He hates sin. And so he gives us our lifetime because of his love for us and you're so valuable. And he turns the house upside down trying to get every one of those lost valuable coins in his possession. But if you refuse to be found, and that, again, I'm not talking to non-Christians here. I'm talking to apathetic worldly Christians who have wandered away and become lost. And think that they are saved because they are Christian in name and thoughts. And But if you will resist him and not be found by him, it is guaranteed in his holiness nobody gets off. Then there is only punishment and wrath. A holy God can only be holy and righteous and godly. It's very important for us to understand that. 
Well, this brings up then the third way in which God loves us. So he's, he's got his, his, he just values us and he doesn't want to punish us on the one hand. And on the other hand, he's holy and he just will not stand for sin. And so then we have this third thing called grace, which is this. He makes provision for us to do what pleases him. He makes provision. This is a, th- a third way. Again, a third way. There's you know, thousands of ways in which God loves us. But a third way in which he loves us is he does not want to punish us, but we must be holy. And so he says, I'm going to help you to be holy so that I don't have to punish you. That's grace. Now, this is very important because I'm going to be contrasting uh, these things throughout the rest of this message now. I want to contrast. By the way, that's not all that grace is. I'm, I'm looking at one component of grace. Grace is such a big word. And we're going to develop more of what grace is throughout this series. I'm looking at one aspect of grace today. But one key aspect of grace is God empowering you to live up to his standards. I want to contrast that because in modern day Christianity, we've perverted grace into God's allowance for us not to be holy. And those two things sometimes sound very similar, and that's why people are duped by them so easily. But a lot of Christians today are thinking that grace is God's allowance. God doesn't care if I'm not holy, or maybe he cares a little bit, but he won't punish me if I'm not, because God's grace covers that. We think of grace as allowance rather than empowerment. And grace is not God shrinking his holiness so that he doesn't have to punish us. It's God bringing us up to his standard of holiness so he doesn't have to punish us. I want to develop that in the rest of this message. Let me just first look at 1 Peter 1, verse 14 to 16. And again, this is one of those areas where in a message I can't go nearly as deep as I want. I'm only going to look at one passage, but if you look at uh, both those papers, and especially repentance is necessary for forgiveness, you're going to see lots and lots and lots of scriptures exactly like this one here, like this one here 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. And I want to show you that holiness is the calling of the Christian life. Uh, Peter says this to each of us. Any of, any of you here, it's most of us, 99% of us, I'm sure, you think of yourself as a Christian here today, this is a calling, what it means to be a Christian. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not just some of it, not pieces of it, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a very important verse. There's many, many more like this throughout the scripture. But this is the calling of the Christian life. The Christian life is not, I pray a prayer once at camp, whenever it is. By the way, the prayer is wonderful. It's a great first step. But a lot of us have gotten duped into this idea that that's the Christian life. I prayed a prayer once, now I just go on living Hopefully some things get worked out in my life, but if they don't, well, I'm just forgiven for it all anyway. That is not what you're called to. The calling of the Christian life. Peter is not joking here. This is not a throwaway passage. This is not unimportant. Peter says, be holy in all of your conduct. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, think about that. Be holy in all your conduct. This means that if you call yourself a Christian, your goal at work is to be holy. Holy. The way that you talk to your boss, the way that you treat your employees, the way that you treat your business partners, the way that you treat your customers. Are you treating people with honor or are you tearing a strip off their back all the time? 
Are you taking advantage of people? Are you cheating in the home? Be holy in all your conduct. This is what you signed up for. If you don't like this, you don't like being a Christian. Be holy in all your conduct, in the home, in the workplace, at home. Wives, do you respect and honor your husbands? Well, he is not deserving of it. That's not the question. Be holy in all your conduct. Men, do you, are, do you cherish your wives? Are you kind to your wives? Do you enjoy watching dirty movies? Does dirty talk come across your lips? All these things that you think, grace is God's allowance on me to do these things. That's not grace. The calling of the Christian life is be holy as I am holy. Be holy in all your conduct, everything. Now I know uh, some of you, you, you hear that passage and you're like, oh, well, that's scary, terrible, because none of us is perfect. Let me repeat this. I'm going to repeat this throughout this series and throughout this message many times today. You're right, none of us is perfect. I'm going to deal with that in a little bit later. But are you broken up about your sins? There's a big difference between, um, you know, not being perfect and hating your sins. Like, I can't believe I did that at work again. I can't believe I exaggerated. I can't believe I yelled. I can't believe I got mad. I can't believe I let it get personal. There's a big difference between feeling bad about repenting and making things right and going at it again, the pursuit of holiness, and just thinking to yourself, well, I'm saved. See, here's the thing. If, if, if that kind of life, if holiness in all your conduct, if that doesn't even appeal to you, like if there's nothing in your heart that says, I mean, yes, none of us is perfect, but a part of your heart should be saying, but I want that. See, that's what it means to be born again. You're born again. You're a new person. And the Holy Spirit is in your heart, and He wants holiness. So if you are born again, this life is actually appealing to you. But if in your sins, you've just got many sins, you're like, I don't want, why would I change that? Why would I change the way I do business? And yeah, I know I take advantage of people. Yeah, I know I cut people down and I rip into people, but that's how I'm, I'm successful. And that's how I'm going to be. And you just have, there's no apology in your spirit. You just are blatant to carry on in that thing. Uh, then one of two things is true. You're either in a very dark place spiritually in danger of Matthew 7, 21, 23 which is to stand before Jesus and call him Lord and have him say, I didn't know you, you didn't obey me. Or you were never born again to begin with. Because if you're born again, that's the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, there's something in you, even if it's a weak desire. For many of us, it's, it's weak, and it's kind of just in there, and, and we lose sight of it. But, there's, but deep down, there is this thing that says, I, I do want to live holy. Because that is what Christian living is. If you don't like that, you don't like being a Christian. You may not be one. Let me tell you two important things about this. Again, I just want to emphasize two things. The first one that we're going to deal with next week. But first of all, the call to holiness is not the call to be 100% perfect in this life. It's not possible. First John 1 John 1.8, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth of God is not in him. We have to confess and repent. The call to holiness is not the call to be 100% perfect in this life. It's the call to the radical pursuit of holiness. That's the calling. I'm going to develop that more next week. It's not perfection. It's pursuit. You're repenting. You're confessing. You hate the sins. You hate the character weaknesses. And you're going after God because you just know, I want righteousness. Righteousness is attractive to me. And then the second thing I want to say, and that's what I want to say now, is, is this is what grace does, okay? What grace is. Here's what grace is, and here's what grace does. 
God looks down and he says, be holy as I am holy. And we look up and we say, yes, God, I want it. I've been born again. I do. I want to be holy. Somewhere deep inside of me, I know I've got things I've got to give up, but I want to be it. But I can't do it. And here's grace. God reaches down and he says, I'm going to help you to do it. Grace is empowerment, not allowance. Uh, let me give you a little illustration. It has to do with my daughter, Joy. I, I talk about my kids a lot. Uh, you know, poor them, growing up, this is what they're going to have. It happened to me too, so in some way it's kind of fair, I think, in kind of <laughs> twisted way. So my daughter, Joy, she's five years old now. Last year she was four years old, and five minus one is four, for those of you who are wondering how I came up with that number, but <laughs> you struggle with math. But uh, anyway, me and my wife, are just, we just have this thing that we want our kids to grow up with a good work ethic, and we want our kids to help out around the house, and why not start at four? And so uh, last year we began requiring of Joy that one of her daily chores was once a day, you know, after supper or whatever, she would sweep the kitchen floor clean. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever told a four-year-old child to sweep the kitchen floor clean. They don't naturally come with that ability, okay? And, uh, and we knew this, right? But we just, you know, we just, for, you know, for better or worse, you know, this is our attempts in imperfect parenting and to help our kids grow, right? And, uh, I mean, even now she's five. She still only does about a C-minus job, okay? But I love her, okay? As long as she does her best, that's what I want, right? And I'll, sometimes after, secretly, I'll go and sweep the floor again. But, um, but she's four years old. And, and we said, okay, you're going to have to sweep the floor. And I knew I'd have to help her. And so, uh, you know, you give her the broom. I provide the broom, right? I don't expect her to go out to Canadian Tire and buy her own broom. And I say, you're going to sweep the floor. And then I provide what she needs, right? So I give her a broom. And then she comes. And her hands are all wrong. I'll never forget this. And, and she's just, she's making the floor worse than it was at the beginning. And I said, okay, honey, I'm going to help you. And so I come and I stand behind her. And she's just the cutest little darling. And, and I get her hands in the right position. And I put my hands over hers. And then we, yeah, oh, there we go. <laughs> and then I do some sweeps with her, right? And I step back and say, you see how to do it? And then she does a few, and then I show her. Now, now you, gotta, you missed that part. You got to do it here. You got to do it here. I move the chairs for her, and I help her to sweep that floor because she cannot do it on her own. That's what grace is like. God gives us a task, and then he says, I will provide everything you need in order to finish the task. Now, I want you to notice what grace isn't, though. And I'm going to show you some scripture in just a moment. Um, grace is not, and this is where some of the grace teaching of our day, it just gets off the path, it gets wrong. And what people are teaching grace is today is, again, it's grace is God's allowance on you, not his empowerment. People are teaching that grace is, you sit back and do nothing and Jesus does everything. Grace is, holiness is impossible, so therefore you sit back and Jesus will do all your holiness for you. Now there's an element of truth there. Jesus does have to work in and through you in order for it to happen. But it's not true that it requires no effort on your part. Imagine if last year, if I would have said, okay, Joy, time to sweep the floor tonight. And she's sitting on the couch and she says, you know what, Daddy? I know it's impossible for me, so I'm just going to let you do it for me. Pardon? (laughs) Miss four-year-old princess? Pardon? You're going to come here right now, right? Or there's going to be discipline. We're going to do this together, right? Because I'm training you up for something. And it's plus, it was actually a lot of fun for us. We actually enjoyed doing it together. It's relational as well. Same thing with God. It's good for us. It's relational. Grace is not, I do nothing. Jesus does it all for me. Grace is, God tells me, holiness in all your conduct. I want it, Lord. Help me. And then he puts his hands over yours and he helps you to do it. But you still get up off the couch and you pursue it. Let me show you this in the Bible. Oh, let me just first put up the written definition there so you have it. 
definition of grace, part one. Again, this is component one. Grace is a big word. There's more components we're going to look at. But component number one, the power God gives you to do what pleases him, the provision he supplies for you to carry out his will. That's grace. Not allowance, power. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, what is sufficiency? Everything you need. He makes grace abound to you so that you will have everything you need all the willpower, all the energy, all the strength, all the revelation when it comes to holiness. And if it's a ministry thing, all the finances, all the resources, all the help, whatever it is, grace is God, God's, God makes his grace abound to you by giving you everything you need in all things and at all times so that you may abound in every good work. Grace is not God's allowance for you not to do good works. It's Grace is God's power in you to do the good works he's calling you to do. Very, very important distinction. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard. I want you to notice that there. Work hard. And again, if you look in these papers, hopefully I'll touch on it next week a bit, there are many scriptures that talk about striving for holiness. Hebrews 12, 14, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 2, First uh, 2 Peter, I get confused now too, as well. Be diligent, pursue righteousness. Be diligent in holiness. Strive for holiness. Philippians 2, 12 here. Uh, work hard. Exert strenuous energy in the pursuit of righteousness. To show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. And now look at the grace part. Our job is obedience. Our, we still have a job. You take a step of obedience, and then there's grace. Here's grace at work. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Isn't that amazing? That's God's grace. But it's, but it's not God doing everything and you doing nothing. You take a step of obedience because you are obeying out of deep reverence and fear. And as you take a little step of obedience, the grace pipeline is expanded and more good desire and more good power is in your life to do more good things. And as you get more grace, oh, you take another step and you take another step of obedience and you have more good desire and more good power to do more good things. And you grow in grace like that. And we all know this to be true, right? Anytime you take a little step of obedience, you know how your heart just softens. It's amazing. I mean, God, you know, you do something and you're just a real jerk to someone or you, or you stole or you did something and God says, go say sorry. I mean, I have lots of experience in saying sorry. And, and I mean, many of you will know what, it, what it's like too. And you don't want to say sorry, but you know, there's just this niggling. You know you have to say sorry and it's the Spirit of God telling you to say sorry. And you're scared to say sorry and you're embarrassed to say sorry and it's the last thing you want to do it's so humbling. But you just take that step of obedience and you show up and you say sorry. And the moment you say sorry, for me, it's pretty much always the same. When I actually just get out there and I go see so-and-so and I say, you know what, I did wrong. And I just start to say sorry. My eyes will start to well up with tears pretty much every time. And the reason is because I, my heart just all of a sudden gets soft. One little step of obedience and God's grace is already pouring into my heart, giving me softness. And you come out of that and you just feel God's love. You take that one little step of obedience and you say sorry or you do whatever God's telling you to do and it's the most amazing feeling in the world. You're like, I love you, God. I want to do more good things. That is grace. The opposite is also true. You take one little step away from God. You take that movie from the video store and you know the Spirit of God is saying you should not watch this and you watch it and what happens? The grace pipeline gets restricted 
And that dullness comes over your heart, a spiritual dullness. And that dullness is a restricting of grace. You have less good desire and less good power to do good things. And often it's just one step of obedience like that. And it can very easily lead to more and more and more disobedience because you're, being, you're cutting your own self off from God's power, which is grace. He gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. We're going to talk about Romans 8.1 here in just a few minutes. I, I, I just want to put now up the definition. Oh, you got it up there already. Awesome. I just want to contrast these things again. I want to make sure that you have this after this message. What grace is not. So grace is God's power to do what pleases him. What grace is not. God's allowance for Christians to persistently sin and not to discipline or punish them because they are automatically forgiven in Christ. It sounds so good. It sounds so good because that's what we want to be true. We want in our flesh to be able to live however we want to live and God will never get mad at us. And that's why in our culture we've taken grace to be his allowance. And again, if I can just encourage you in these papers, you're going to see scripture after scripture about the fact that God does get angry at people who think they're Christians and at people who are Christians and he does punish and judge. And so that is not grace. And so before I go to Romans 8.1, I just want to leave you with one more analogy here that I think will be helpful and hopefully it kind of captures God's heart in all of this and what the grace walk looks like. And so as you're following God, you realize, okay, he's calling me to be holy and, and, and you get born again and whatever it is. But it's for all of us, not just for new believers. It's for all of us, wherever you are in your life right now. And God's got a bar there and it's a high bar. And, and you look at that bar and God says, I want you to clear that bar. And if you're truly born again, you look at that bar and you go, I, I want to clear that bar because it's wonderful. That's, it's not an arbitrary bar. It, holiness is actually heavenly. It's wonderful. So you look at that high bar and you say, I want to clear it, Jesus, but I can't. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to help you. And so he sets that bar and he says, you're going you're to clear this thing now. And he kneels down at the bottom and he says, I'm going to give you a boost. Now you line up over there. And so you walk over here and you look at that high bar and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to clear this. And, and now you start to take a run. Some of you are hoping I'm going to jump and see how far I can go, right? Um, but anyway, you, you take a run, right? But you're an imperfect human being. I am too. And so you're running for that bar. Okay, Lord, you're calling me to clear the bar. You're calling me holy as you were holy. And whatever this situation is in my life that you want me to clear, a thing you want me to deal with here. And so I'm running and, you know, a noise at the side distracts my attention and I look up and I trip and I hit my head on the bar. I don't even get close to clearing it. And I'm down in the dirt and I'm all dirty. And I go, oh Lord, I got distracted. I got my eyes off you. Totally missed the bar. I'm sorry. You know what he says? I love you. And he says, I forgive you. See, he delights in the pursuit. It's the pursuit of holiness. He picks you up. He dusts you off. I delight in you. Clean slate. Forget about it. But now here's what grace is not. He does not just pass you along now. He says, line up again. Okay. Fresh slate. So you line up again. Okay, Lord, I've, I got it this time. I'm clearing this time with your help. And so he's kneeling there ready with his hands. Together. He's going to give you a boost. And you go for a run. And, and again, and you're going to put your hand in his, or your, or your foot in his hand. And instead you put it in your mouth and you go tumbling. And, and oh, I missed it again, Lord. Please forgive me. And he picks you up again. He says, I love you. I delight in you. You're not anywhere close to perfect, but you are pursuing what I want you to pursue. I love you. And he dusts you off. And he does not say, let's keep going. He says, line up again. This is the grace walk. 
Grace is not Jesus lowering his standards for you. It's you repenting and Jesus delighting in your repentance. And you don't come back to the start line and go, oh, I'm such a bad Christian, I'm so bad. If you really repented, it's a fresh start. And he loves you and he's happy with you. And he says, do it again. And because we're imperfect people, it might be a hundred times, it might be a thousand times that you miss that bar. Sometimes you hit your head on it, sometimes you don't even get close. And every time, thousands of times, infinite number of times, Jesus is happy to forgive you and start you fresh as long as you're pursuing. Every time. And maybe finally on the 101st time, you line up and you go and you get your foot right in his hand and he boosts you over and you clear that bar. And you come down on the other side and Jesus gives you a bear hug and you celebrate. Oh Lord, I'm getting victory in my life. Oh Jesus, it took months, but I'm getting victory in my life. I'm becoming more like you. And he celebrates with you. And once you celebrate it for a bit, he says, okay, now I got another bar. It's a little higher. Okay, Lord. And he lines you up again. And now it's like this high, right? And you go through the whole thing again. That is the grace walk. But where modern Christianity has warped it and twisted it, and it's like a disease, and it's killing people, and it's going to send some people to hell, is modern grace is teaching people not anything like that. Modern grace teaches people to do these, this. They walk underneath the bar, and they look up at it, and they go, Phew. thank goodness for grace, I don't have to clear that. That's what they think. Grace is God's allowance. And they just walk under, and they never partner with Jesus. They never war with him. They never repent. They never line up again. They don't get dirty and bloody in a war against the flesh and sin. They just look up and go, phew. And they just casually live in their sins. And for those people, that is a dangerous place to be. But for those who are pursuing and are going after it and are saying sorry, God loves you. God loves you and he's happy with you. But for those who are just casual about their sins, dangerous, there's a danger of God's wrath and judgment coming into your life. Romans 8.1, this is what I want to spend the last few minutes of this message on because I think it's a misinterpretation and a, and a false teaching about this passage that is causing so many Christians to, to treat sin like this. And a famous passage, right? It's very famous. The passage itself is wonderful. Holy Spirit passage, right? Awesome promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The problem is how people are teaching this and using this. And what they think of it as is, and what it's being taught as is, there is it is impossible for a Christian to come under condemnation no matter what you do. There's no condemnation. Oh, I've been looking at porn again. Well, good thing there's no condemnation for me. I've been ripping people off in my business for the last 10 years, but I've been a Christian for 15. Thank goodness for grace. Thank goodness for grace, right? There's no condemnation for me. God, even when I persist in sin and rebellion and apathy about my sins and I don't deal with them and I don't war against them, thank goodness God sees me as holy in Jesus and there's no condemnation. It's actually false. There's a, there's a very important precondition here. It doesn't say there's therefore now no condemnation for everyone who thinks there's a, they're a Christian. We already know from Matthew 7, 21 to 23 that many people who think they're Christians are going to be cast into hell by Jesus. The important precondition here is for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who is in Christ Jesus? 
Who is in Christ Jesus? Is it anybody who's prayed a prayer to receive Jesus in their life? Well, let's see what the Bible says. There's many places we, go, we could go. I'm going to look at James chapter 2, hopefully next week. We can look at the rest of Romans chapter 8, but that, that pathway would take us a little longer. I'm going to go to 1 John. 1 John 3.24. Who are the people that are in Christ Jesus that can claim no condemnation? Well, let's look. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Who is in Christ and who can claim the promise of no condemnation? Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Someone who prayed a prayer and just continues to live however they want to live, not in God. They can have a bunch of right doctrines up here. They can do a bunch of Christian things, but they, just, they, they are just terrible when they're with people. They're just a cesspool of negativity and a critical spirit and gossip and slander and lust and, all, and anger and all those sorts of things. And you are not in Christ. You cannot claim no condemnation for yourself. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 5.18 We know that everyone, I want you to notice that, everyone who has been born of God, so you can just read born again, everyone who has been born of God, has been born again, does not keep on sinning. The statistics of the Christian population in North America just got a whole lot smaller. Say, oh, Chris, don't, oh, that's a terrible thing to preach. This is, I'm just reading to you 1 John. This is John's preaching. We know that everyone who has been truly born again does not keep sinning. Now, again, it's not perfection. There is God's grace. Remember, you're missing the bar, but you're pursuing, you're repenting. Oh, Lord, help me. I'm sorry. That's terrible. Line up again. I forgive you. But if you're just casually going through life, grace is God's allowance on my life. He says this, you're not born again. Because everybody who is truly born again does not keep on sinning that way. But he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. 1 John 3, 4-10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Listen this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Romans 8.1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is in Christ Jesus? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Little children, let no one deceive you, including the grace without fear teachers that are littering the Christian landscape today. John says about them, don't let them deceive you. They're saying, hey, it's all forgiven. Just get forgiveness conscious. conscious. And God has forgiven you and just think about that and think about that and think about that. Don't worry about repentance because God is not going to condemn you for your sins. And John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Look what he says next. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So you're going, stop reading. This is the Bible. We need to know this. Some of us need to get on our knees after this. We can go to the prayer room and say, Lord Jesus, I want to actually be born again because I don't think I ever have been. And some of us other ones need to just get in there and repent and say, I have drifted far from the path and I'm on my way to having Matthew 7, 21 to 23 happen to me on the judgment day. And Lord Jesus, I want to turn back to you and pursue holiness. I'm repenting of my sins because no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How is it evident? By what they say about themselves. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I got saved at a revival. I got saved at camp, whatever it is. Oh, that's a good first step. And can I tell now if you're born of God or of the devil? I can. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Of course, we don't, I'm not saying that we turn this into, into judging of judging who it is, but this is what John is saying, right? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, Romans 8 verse 1 is an amazing promise. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in the pursuit. They're in the repentance. You know, repentance is like an onion, People, so a lot of Christians say, think of repentance as that was the thing, the one thing they did when they got saved. Repentance is, unless you got 100% perfect when you got saved, which I don't think there's anybody here that did that. I certainly didn't. Repentance is like an onion. And that onion is not just a little onion. It's like a mile wide for a bunch of us. And you spend your whole life, you just repent, you peel off another layer and you cry a little bit. And then, and then, and then you repent again. <laughs> You get through that and you just, you, oh Lord, I can't believe I'm still doing that. And you spend your whole life repenting your way towards Jesus. That's what the born again life looks like and it's wonderful. And for those who engage in that life, there is now therefore no condemnation. He won't pour his wrath out on you. And it's a wonderful promise. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Next year, or next week, sorry. <laughs> next year. Next week, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the difference between immaturity, we all have immaturity in our lives, and apathy and persistent sin and rebellion. Because God has no allowance for this side, and he has a lot of grace. He's going to work with us on this side. He's going to give us power to overcome those things, right? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. Oh, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you don't lower yourself to our level. You raise us up to yours by grace. And Jesus, I pray that you would open up a pipeline of power and desire into our lives to do the right thing. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of grace, which is a spirit of repentance. To even be able to feel bad about our sins is grace. I pray that you would give us remorse, Father, for the things that we've done, that we can truly turn back to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.